I can jump into just like what's going on here before I get to like, um, you know, uh, actually doing it. So basically, because uh, I want each of these episodes to be like a standalone show, so I don't want to like go through a whole introduction about what I'm doing every time. But uh, this being the first episode, I think it's reasonable to cover some of that. So my basic uh, thinking with this whole project um, is that I believe that evaluating limited cards in a vacuum doesn't make any sense. I think that uh, magic is all about interactions. And uh, when someone asks me, like, is this card or this card better? The answer is always, well, I don't know. It depends on what your, the rest of your deck is. But that's kind of like a blow-off answer in that, like, we can look at what kinds of patterns there are and what kinds of decks you usually have, especially if we know what color combination you're in. And so I want to kind of flesh out the tools to use to evaluate uh, cards in the context of archetypes to figure out uh, what things you should be using to evaluate cards differently in different contexts, and then also to kind of follow that through to its logical conclusion to figure out which cards are actually good in an actual archetype that uh, we're interested in drafting, and then talk about uh, how to draft around that idea and how to like put all of the theory about what matters into practice in actually making picks and talking about like what cards you should take over which other cards such that uh, at the end of the whole thing you should be able to uh, just like think about uh, what we've gone over and hopefully what you've learned from this and then just apply it uh, to your next draft and just have the experience of practicing uh, whatever information's been imparted and then seeing if it's successful and then uh, adopting whatever works for you uh, from what I've said about how to do things into your drafting uh, in a way that should kind of like reinforce the uh, principles. So I, I think that just like giving really concrete examples about how to draft a single archetype is kind of the best way to um, just like flesh out a fundamental understanding of limited, even though it's like really precise because it gives you such a concrete way to look at and evaluate the principles. So uh, with that all, that background all understood, let's kind of jump right into it, into talking about how uh, to draft um, blue-white party in Zendikar. Um, and I'm starting with blue-white party because I think that it has some really interesting and unique uh, things that you need to look at when you're drafting it, and I also think that it's one of the most powerful and, from what I've seen in other content, underappreciated archetypes in uh, Zendikar. So we're going to start by talking about, like, how do you get into Blue-White Party, and why do you get into Blue-White Party, and why am I saying that Blue-White is party instead of just, like, Blue-White? So, uh, basically, um, my claim is that there are so many good payoffs for drafting the party mechanic in blue and white that um, and it's so easy to find the uh, correct class cards to enable party that I think that if you try to draft blue white in a way that doesn't prepare you to take advantage of party cards in the first couple packs you will ultimately have to like forgo enough payoffs that your deck will suffer for not having positioned yourself to take advantage of uh, the party mechanics that are like present in these archetypes in almost all times when uh, you 
have a reason to be drafting uh, when, you're, when it makes sense to be blue-white in your seat. Um, there are some rare exceptions where maybe like blue is super open and you start drafting like a blue kicker deck and maybe like green isn't open or blue is just wide open and you just end up basically like mono blue kicker with some random white bombs you want to splash or similar thing where you're like mono white clerics and you splash some random blue bombs or whatever. But for the most part, if you're drafting like a blue-white deck, you're going to want some party synergies. And so you're going to want to draft with like preparing to maximize those synergies in mind. Um, so the most common ways that I end up in blue-white, which again is always, I'm always going to be thinking of that as blue-white party, is either by starting with a really powerful uh, blue-white gold card, which is somewhat uncommon, but it does happen, or a blue or white card that specifically references party where i'm most likely to want to be blue white party uh because blue and white is so much better at taking advantage of uh the party mechanics specifically than all the other combinations are um and the last way is where rather than like having a first pick that puts me in this kind of direction i just take some good cards in one of the colors and then uh the other color is open and i take good cards in that color so um Basically, you're either going to take a card that immediately sends you here, or you're going to just like take flexible good cards and then kind of settle in this path. Uh, every now and then you get there in a more roundabout fashion where like you're drafting something else and it gets cut and you end up shifting into here. Not that the, the difference isn't really that important, but um, those are kind of the primary ways that you end up here. Big picture, um, this is limited. There are bombs. If you find a bomb that you can pass, that you can cast in a pack, you should take it. Uh, nothing about like the, you know, understanding about what it means to be blue white party should trump like basic limited stuff. But uh, this set is like pretty balanced. There are a lot of cards of really similar power levels, and you need to figure out how to decide which of two or three cards that are like roughly similar power levels you want to take when you're drafting. Um, and so where you know kind of like the whole mutant strategy of drafting is is trying to you know make those decisions and having the tools to like evaluate it in a coherent way so in blue white party you are looking to maximize your like party payoffs and enablers um after like first maximize power level then maximize synergy uh and for the most part the party enablers and payoffs are where you're getting your synergy so um you need to be aware of what those payoffs and more importantly, uh, what the enablers are. Because the payoffs don't do anything without the enablers, whereas the enablers are just cards by themselves. You can play them and it's fine. Um, so uh, with party, you need to have a balanced party, which means that where in most archetypes, you're just trying to decide, like often you'll just be trying to figure out, um, like you're trying to balance a curve. Um, when you're deciding between cards of similar power level, uh, especially with like two creatures, you're going to look for uh, the creature that like better fits in your curve. Um, you, for the most part, prioritize having things to do early in the game. You want enough two and three drops that you're making plays and not falling behind. But then if you have like too many two drops, you might get to the point where you just don't have enough high impact cards and you like cast your whole hand and then fall behind when your opponent casts more powerful spells later. So you need to balance a curve. Um, but with party, you need to simultaneously balance a curve and balance your party types 
And the fact that you need to like juggle that simultaneous balance where your curve definitely still matters. In fact, I would argue that it's particularly important in this archetype due to strategically what this archetype's trying to do, um, which I'll get into in a second. All you, so you need to balance uh, types and curve. And to uh, be able to do that, you need to know where, what tools are potentially available to you. So you need to know like, if I'm looking for a rogue and I'm looking, and I'm expecting that most of my rogues uh, that I don't already have are going to be commons because those are the ones I'm most likely to see. What spots in my curve can I like find rogues for? Like as it happens, the only common blue and white rogues are the two uh, common blue rogues, Zulport Duelist and uh, Seafloor Stalker, that cost one and three mana. So if you're like, well, I'm looking for four drops and I'm looking for rogues, you need to know you're not going to find a four drop rogue unless you hit an uncommon. Um, and so. Uh, you're going to prioritize non-rogue four drops and then rogue rogues at the cost so that you can get them. Um, so there's kind of like that juggling that you need to do. Uh, so the thing that I was saying about your curve being particularly important in this archetype, there are a few reasons for that. One, uh, the party stuff pays you off for having your party type creatures in play already, which means it's really important to, it's much more important in this archetype than in many archetypes in many formats to play a one drop and play a two drop. Even if those creatures can't profitably attack, uh, you're generating some kind of value just by having them in play. And so uh, that means that, for example, um, Seagate Banneret, the uh, one mana, one two warrior that can pump your team for five mana uh, that might not be a priority in other decks is really good in blue at party because you get so much value just by having a card on the battlefield that says warrior um, and so you really want to like hit you want to play these creatures early to maximize the power of your payoffs by already having a battlefield with a bunch of types in play um, so yeah you really want to prioritize having a nice low smooth curve and having a high creature density um, and a high diversity of types mix balance density um that means like the fact that you want a high creature density to maximize your uh, enablers for these payoffs means that you're going to want relatively few non-creature spells that means that removal uh isn't as high a priority as it is in other archetypes because every removal spell you play is one less party member that you're playing that actually works really well strategically for blue-white because you have a combination of good blockers and evasive attackers, which means that you're relatively well positioned to both invalidate your opponents like ground attackers, uh, cards like Core Celebrant mean that your opponents random two ones, of which there are a lot that there are reasons to play, can't profitably attack you, and the single Core Celebrant can hold off multiple of those. And then uh, various evasive creatures like Seafloor Stalker and uh, Flyers like Expedition, uh, Diviner, and Shepherd of Heroes uh, give you a way to win that can attack past a board of random small creatures that can't attack you. So rather than trying to kill all of their stuff, you're trying to like establish this kind of like gummed up board that you have a way through and they don't. So it's really uh, seamless to play a low density of removal and a high density of creatures, and that contributes to a battlefield that both maximizes the strength of your party cards and maximizes kind of like the utility of your strategy about like gumming up the board and then having 
evasive things that can attack through it, and Seagate Banerite can benefit from having a large board, and there are a lot of tricks uh, that work pretty smoothly here that um, having creatures in play on both sides because you're not casting removal spells maximizes the chances that combat occur, which maximizes the chances that you can get value out of a Zulaport Duelist or a Chilling Trap or... Um, any of those, uh, uh, Bane Veil or whatever, any of the cards that's going to modify combat in some way. Um, you're more able to take advantage of that the more creatures you have and the less you're killing your opponent's creatures that it's more likely that uh, messy combats are occurring. You can get away with not a lot of removal, which means that you can be really picky about which removal you play. So, for example, I have never put a Mihiri's Binding in a blue-white party deck because I'm not looking to maximize my removal and... Um, it's not efficient, it's not. It's just not a strong enough card. Whereas I'm generally very happy to play with uh, cards like Kabira Takedown, Journey to Oblivion, and Practice Tactics that uh, are really efficient, powerful removal spells when you have um, this like base of wanting to have a lot of cheap creatures of different types in play. Um, you can take a lot of advantage of that. And then obviously, uh, cards like Lone Mage's Domination that are technically removal spells, uh, Lone Mage's Domination, Skyclave Apparition, like these cards that are kind of like two-for-one removal spells that uh, you know result in your opponent having one less creature and you having one more creature, that obviously falls under the category of limited bomb that you want no matter what. Um, and it just like that whole thing trumps the archetype-specific considerations. That's like the kind of like driving principles of this archetype. Uh, having a battlefield is good. Trades are bad. Uh, trades can mean both my card trades for your card by definition because it's a removal spell, or trades can mean my creature trades with your creatures and now they're not in play anymore. As a result of that second principle, um, that means that... Uh, cards like Cliffhaven Sellsword. There's interesting tension with Cliffhaven Sellsword. On the one hand, it's relatively weak in this archetype because it's so prone to trades, which means that it's not good at staying on the battlefield. On the other hand, uh, the high power, low toughness nature of um, Cliffhaven Sellsword means that it plays well with um, uh, Cordulist and um, chilling trap specifically because it's really easy for your opponent to try to like line up a small creature against your big creature and your big creature will kill their thing and you might not need a lot of power shrinking to save your thing so by default i'm not excited about cliffhaven sellsword as my warrior in blue white party but the more uh that my rogues are zulaport duelists the more i want my warriors to be cliffhaven sellswords whereas if my rogues are seafloor stalkers um, then I have that plan to win. And so, like, I'm less excited about trying to, like, generate combat and get value with these uh, cell swords, and I'm more excited about having any of the other warriors. So you kind of want to pay attention to small synergies. Like, when we're talking about just, like, which common do you want, um, there's a lot of room for just, like, little uh, synergies like that to change how desirable each of them are. And um, so you can find little pairings like that where you either want, like, this combo or this combo um, occupying that slot of a rogue and a warrior in your deck. For the most part, even if you have these creatures that are like high power, low toughness, more likely to trade, you're... So, Cliffhaven Sellsword is a card that's very likely to trade if you attack with it, but can actually lead to a board stall if you defend with it, because if your opponent has a three or four mana creature, 
that has three toughness. They actually don't want to attack into your two drop because they're trading a strong, like a more expensive creature for your less expensive creature. So uh, the like three ones can actually end up functioning as pretty good blockers that don't actually block. They just discourage attacks. Um, so it's not like strictly the case that you don't want any high power, low toughness things. That's not what I'm trying to say. But what I'm trying to say is you shouldn't have a plan B. I'm going to like clear the way for my Cliffhaven sword to attack you several times. That's like maybe a red-white game plan, but that's not a blue-white game plan. You need to be aware that with your creatures, you're not trying to trade them off, and you're not trying to like use removal to get your creatures through. You're trying to use them to gum up the board so that you can uh, take advantage of tricks and evasive creatures, and uh, also things that pay you for having a lot of creatures in play, especially the rare cycle of... Um, in blue and white, there's one rare of each type that gives you some kind of large benefit for having a full party. So that's uh, Archpriest of Iona, Nimble Trap Finder, uh, Linvala, Shield of whatever she's a shield of, uh, Seagate, and Squad Commander. Um, and all of all of those rares are great um, in this archetype. Uh, they're all... I'm, I'm happy to, like... I'm thrilled to first pick Squad Commander. I think it's just, like, one of the best cards. Um, and then totally happy to first pick any of the other three um and then uh draft around it like nimble trap finder is in any other archetype like just fine like it's mostly just like a 2-1 with a reasonable form of evasion that scales up the more uh party members you have in your deck but uh in blue eye party it's very very common to actually get the full party benefit and draw a bunch of cards and basically win the game as soon as you like get that full party benefit and can, like it connects and then you probably have some flyers connecting too and it's great. Another thing about this fact that density uh, that you like just want a lot of stuff in play means that uh, Farsight Adept, which is the white two three three wizard uh, ETB both players draw a card, is very good in this archetype. Um, I know that that's a card that uh, has players have kind of polarized opinions about. I think that it's really, really good anytime you have a low curve and you're looking uh, for party payoffs. Um, I think it's it's one of my, it's a priority in this archetype. It's one of my favorite wizards to have, even though the blue wizards are actually pretty good. Um, but I, I think that card is really strong because you're prioritizing uh, synergies that combine, that like emerge when you have a lot of cards and uh, taking advantage of cheap effects uh, to pull ahead. Um, and both of those make the we both draw a card good, and then 3-3 three, three for 3 is like a fine rate for a common. Um, so uh, I like that, for, like to compare it to uh, Marasa Brute, the green 3-3 three, three warrior with no text, I think that card is very bad in basically every deck. Part of that's that I think green doesn't care about party as much as... Uh, white does but even ignoring that uh no text is nowhere near as good as both your players draw a card because that's a synergy that you can exploit and blue white exploits it really well the next thing to talk about is uh the specific pressures that exist to balance your types in blue white uh obviously every color has a different mix of cards and different types every pair has types that are harder for it to find and types that are easier for it to find as i mentioned at common the only rogues that are available to Blue White are Zulaport, uh, Duelist, Seafloor Stalker, and of course Stonework Parabeast. Um, there are more creatures of every other type uh, than there are rogues available in this archetype. So um, 
the for reference the next hardest type to find is warrior where you have stonework pack beast and the seven mana uh colorless warrior that's cheaper for party and then you also have um one two and four mana uh white warriors in uh the banneret the cell sword and uh kibera outrider um so you have five total warriors versus only three total rogues what that means is that you need to prioritize the rogues a little more high, highly than the warriors, which you need to prioritize more highly than the uh, wizards and clerics, which are more common and equally common. That actually works out really well because, as it happens, Zulaport Duelist and Seafloor Stalker are both great in this archetype. Probably not a coincidence um, that uh, the design of this set was careful to make sure that the rogues in blue were desi desirable for this archetype so that there would be sufficient support for it. Um, so that means that you want to prioritize both of those cards. Um, and then you can like expect to get a sim similar number of warriors to the number of rogues that you get if you assign less preference to taking uh, the warriors that exist. That means you can be a little more picky about them. Uh, that means you can choose not to prioritize your Cliffhaven Cell Swords and your Kabira Outriders, um, and instead, uh, well, really, I was going to say prioritize your like Seagate Bannerets, but that's not even the case. What you're really looking for in Warriors is you're looking to prioritize the uncommon and rare Warriors, and then take the common Warriors just kind of when they're there left over in the pack if you don't have uh, uncommon warriors that you're really looking for. So like the warriors that you really want to fill your deck with are like the angel, uh, Emiria angel, or whatever it is, the uh, the warrior that um, enters the battlefield with counters equal to the number of types you have. And um, squad commander, obviously, at rare. Um, these kinds of like stronger payoffs. You can, you can be pickier about not taking the commons until you're like in pack three and you haven't seen any of the good uncommons and then you're like, okay, whatever, I'll just take whichever of these common warriors there are to end up my party. Clerics and wizards, uh, those exist in even more abundance so you can be even uh, pickier about them. Um, the thing that's interesting to note about uh, your preference for uh, clerics compared to the preference for wizards is that uh, in my opinion, the power level of wizards is much more flat at common in this archetype than the power level of clerics. Uh, specifically, Core Celebrant and Shepherd of Heroes are much stronger than the other uh, common clerics. Um, there's the 3-2 cleric that uh, Angel, Angel Heart Protector and Cleric of Chill Depths are both cards that I really don't want to have to play. And Expedition Healer is fine but unexciting. And uh, those plus Stonework Pack Beast are the clerics that are available. Um, uh, Shepherd of Heroes and Core Celebrant are both fantastic. The others are somewhere between filler and bad. Uh, that means that like, as long as I can fill my cleric slots with Core Celebrant and Shepherd of Heroes, my deck is going to be way better than if I have to fill my cleric slots with uh, Expedition Healers. Whereas with Wizards... I think that Farsight Adept, Tazim Royal Mage, Expedition Diviner, um, those three are all pretty close in power level. And uh, Cunning Geyser Mage and uh, Cascade Seer, so that's the Kicker Bouncer thing and the ETB Scry for Party. Um, 
Those are like the lowest priority uh, wizards, but those are both way better than Cleric of Chill Depths and Angel Heart Protector. The wizards are kind of interchangeable. Like you want to have them, but you will have them. There are enough available that you don't need to like go really far out of your way for them. Um, whereas the clerics are a really high priority, and your fight and uh, people who are drafting white black clerics are also really highly prioritizing them. So uh, Shepherd of Heroes is kind of like one of the core commons that's going to make me more likely to draft this archetype because I, I do think that Shepherd of Heroes is at its best in this archetype and. Um, where like Core Celebrant might be better than Shepherd of Heroes in Black White Clerics, Shepherd of Heroes is better than Core Celebrant in uh, Blue White Party. So um, early on in a draft, um, possibly as the way that I get into this archetype, I really like to prioritize finding uh, Shepherd of Heroes. And these decks end up being a lot better if you have Shepherd of Heroes because it means that you don't have to play bad clerics and you also have this card that just does everything you're trying to do. It wins races, it like lets you ignore attackers, it lets you have like a wide board where you're not trading off and you're taking some damage, but then you gain life from it and it helps stabilize and helps like kind of uh, turn the clock and you know start uh, turn the corner and start attacking. Just an interesting note there about like how even relative, like even or because these cards are good, you prioritize them even more above the other cards because they're less replaceable, um, comparing them to the wizards. That's like the notes on uh, relative prioritizations of common creatures. Worth noting, there are uh, other creatures um, that don't have types that exist in these part in these uh, colors. Um, there's like the squid, and there's uh, the 2-3 landfall, get a plus one, plus one counter on it, uh, white creature for four. Personally, the way that I draft is that I try to avoid playing those cards as much as possible. Um, I will put a Skyclave Apparition in my deck, obviously, and I would say more often than not, I play the Fledgling, the two mana uncommon 1-1 one, one that uh, gets a plus one, plus one counter and flying when you play a land. But I don't always, like, I will draft that card and then not submit it in my blue-white deck sometimes, which I'm not completely sure that that's right, but it is it is something that I do. Um, I think that card is extremely powerful, but it's a pretty bad draw late, um, and if it's not contributing to synergies, um, then I'd rather have something that is a lot of the time... Um, Especially since it's, like, very much an aggressive card. Like, it, you can block with it. It does end up being a creature with reasonable stats. But, like, for the most part, it's, like, a creature that you're trying to be done with. It has evas evasion only when attacking. And this archetype, I, I'm, I'm not really... I, I don't often find myself super concerned with, like, I need to win a race in that kind of way. I generally feel pretty good about my, like, medium, mid to long game with this archetype. So um, it's certainly fine to play like a couple off-tribe creatures, but for the most part, I'm going to very high. I, I care about creature type a lot. Um, I, I'm going to prioritize having the types quite a bit. And obviously, that's going to vary a little bit depending on your density of payoffs. But I find that most of the time that I'm drafting this, I do end up with like some of the really good uncommons and rares that uh, care about your... Uh, party stuff um so like i, I mean I, I had one deck where i had three like i had um 
Archpriest and Nimble Trap Finder and Linvala. Um, because they're like narrow cards that other people don't want, and uh, Blue White Party is, in my opinion, relatively underdrafted. So those cards just sometimes float to you. Um, obviously, I haven't mentioned it yet, but Spoils of Adventure is a card that I'm. I hate passing it. I'm thrilled to see it. Very happy to first pick it. Would first pick it over like most uh, other things that might be in the pack. There, there are. It's not like it's the highest uncommon I take, and obviously there are rares that are better than all the uncommons. But like clearly, I take it over every, every common, and I don't think it's very close. Uh, Spoils of Adventure brings me to a, an important point about. So I talked about how. Uh, there are kind of just like different little packages that can exist in this deck and uh, pairings of cards to look for. Um, and one of the major kind of inflection points in uh, different ways that you can draft this deck is um, do you have busted instants and sorceries? Uh, if yes, then prioritize to Zim Royal Mage. And then that has some cascading effects. So what I'm saying is if you start the draft with a card like Emeria's Call, or Spoils of Adventure, or Lull Mage's Domination, or Inscription of Insight. Um, those, those exactly are the big ones that are going to make me do this. If you start the draft with one of those, then I want to take Tazim Royal Mage highly. But taking Tazim Royal Mage highly means that I need to have spells to return with Tazim Royal Mage when I don't draw that one good card that I'm like taking it uh, to um, return which means that I need to look to have like a little bit higher density of spells than I otherwise would. But the thing that I said about how I'm not really looking to like trade, I want a big game rather than a small game, which means that I want like card draw more than I want uh, removal. So um, I'm looking to fill out my deck with, um, or when I'm looking for spells to maximize Royal Mage, I'm looking for cards like Skyclave Plunder and Field Research and Into the Royal and Chilling Trap more than I'm looking for, um, uh, let's say, like Jwari Disruption or um, any of the uh, removal stuff, except, I mean, the, the good removal is good and, like, that's fine. But I guess, so more, I mean, I'm looking for those more than you might think. Um, because they allow me to increase my spell density, but because they replace themselves, they don't really decrease my creature density, at least not like appreciably. So um, there's like the, I have a strong spell and now I'm prioritizing to Zima Royal Mage, which means now I'm prioritizing spells, but also the fact that I have this strong spell and this Royal Mage um, maybe multiple royal mages, and maybe like into the royals that can pick up the royal mage, and maybe I'm planning, and then maybe I get like a second really strong spell. Now my deck has a really powerful spell-based late game, and so when I'm in that kind of space, that means that I can put less weight on cards like Seafloor Stalker and uh, Expedition Diviner, and these cards that let me close a game with combat, um, and more weight on just like defensive cards that uh, are just going to stall until I can win the game with these spells. So you need to pay attention to like what, how you're winning the game, um, and you don't want to assign... Once you have an answer to that, you put less emphasis on finding a second answer to that. So if you can win the game 
by overwhelming the power level of your opponent's cards with your powerful late game spells. You don't also need to win the game by having like these good evasive threats because you're already going to win a game that goes long, so what's your hurry? Why bother to attack with a flyer when you could instead play a card that's better at like playing a longer game to get to the point where you limit these spells? Um, and then conversely, of course, if you're like, oh, well, I have all these like really efficient evasive creatures. Um, I have like that uh, uncommon warrior flyer that like hits really hard, and um, I just have like a nice low curve that's really good at attacking and really hard to block against. Um, then it's maybe not so important to have Skyclave Plunder type spells that uh, give you like a strong late game that's just like not really relevant to your I'm going to kill you with flyers plan. And the deck can really seamlessly do both of those things, um, but you do want to like pay attention to like what plan am I building to or like what sub plan am I building to. This completes the lecture portion of our show. Um, I'm always going to these uh, episodes or this podcast will always be uh, recorded live on Twitch, and I'm, it will open with a lecture that covers everything that I want to express about the archetype. And then uh, when I wrap that up, I'm going to transition to uh, taking questions from Twitch chat, and um, in the future, taking uh, questions that are sent to me in advance potentially, um, and then uh, answer those questions. So. Thanks for watching. If you want to hear your questions asked, head on over to twitch.tv slash Samuel H. Black to watch the live show or go to patreon.com slash drafting archetypes and we'll prioritize your questions each week.